Good morning, and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's co-sponsored book talk this morning. Uh, I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Uh, today, we will be hearing a presentation on Television and the Afghan Culture Wars, brought to you by foreigners, warlords, and activists by Professor Wazma Masman from Temple University. Uh, today's talk will be moderated uh, by Professor Sumanth Inukanda from the Guardia Community College, who are also joined today by his students. Uh, in the computer lab at LaGuardia Community College this morning. Wazman Osman is an assistant professor in Temple University's Department of Media Studies and Production uh, and a faculty member in both the Master of Science in Globalization and Development Communication Program and the PhD Program in Media and Communication. Uh, she is a faculty affiliate of the Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies Program as well as South Asia Center at University of Pennsylvania. Uh, Professor Osman earned her PhD in 2012 from the uh, New York University, uh, where she studied media, culture, and communication. She is a graduate of the culture and media program in anthropology. Uh, she, her research and teaching are rooted in feminist media ethno ethnographies that focus on the political economy of global media industries and the regimes of representation and visual culture that they produce. Uh, in addition to today's book, uh, which he published recently. Uh, Professor Osman is also researching on how new technologies of war, violence, and representation predicated on old co uh, colonial tropes are being repackaged and deployed during the war on terror. Uh, her critically acclaimed documentary, Postcards from Tora Bora, has been shown in festivals around the world. Uh, please welcome Professor Osman. Thank you very much, Anthony, for that um, great introduction. I have about... Um, 20 slides, uh, and then we're going to leave plenty of time for Q&A and a discussion um, afterwards. I'm going to try to keep it short, focusing on uh, some of the key aspects of my book. Um, I also want to um, thank uh, Suman for um, organizing, as well as um, Nitu and uh, Kuhn from LaGuardia College and um, um, Anthony from AARI uh, -A or ARI, the Asian American um, and um, Asian Research Unit, uh, Institute, I'm sorry. Um, so um, yeah, let's get started. Um, I start with this image, uh, which is a famous painting. Um, and um, this depicts the American settlers that came, um, that were moving westward in the US. Um, and, and the reason I do that is because people often ask me what drew me to write the book. And I start by saying that it was really how um, Afghan people, and I'm you know, uh, from Afghanistan, um, and it was the, the way that Afghan people have been represented in Western discourse. And from Rudyard Kipling to Winston Churchill, the prevailing image of Afghans has been of a people that are tribal, traditional, um, and barbaric. And these images in and of themselves um, are you know highly racist um, imagery, which then impacts those communities that I'm a part of um, very negatively, um, and um, this partially has to do with with colonialism, 
and the fact that um, Afghanistan has been at the intersection of imperial ambitions um, from the great game to the cold war to the current um, US forever war that came to an end after 20 years in a, a very tragic way, which we can talk about in the Q&A. So um, Orientalism, which um, is a theory that some of the uh, students may or may not be familiar with, but um, Orientalism and colonial mythologies, it's the way that people from um, the East are portrayed um, has had an, a, a bearing on um, how um, people from um, Asia are represented um, in uh, negative ways. Um, and so this is not unique, this type of negative imagery and dehumanization of people um, to Afghanistan alone, but this is also the case for uh, people from countries across um, Asia and the Middle East, which is sometimes called West Asia, as well as indigenous um, people, what are called First Nations people, Native Americans, all of them are oftentimes said to be savages. In the Trump era, which you know is a more recent era that many of you I'm sure can remember um, these colonial mythologies were stoked again by him to stir anti-Asian sentiment and hatred, first with the Muslim ban and then with you know, uh, the coronavirus and the pandemic. He called it the China virus and so forth and so on, which led to all types of violence towards um, you know, Asian American communities, including loss of businesses and so forth and so on. And so that's just the backdrop to what led me to um, write the book because um, I wanted to uh, show a different side of Afghans in Afghanistan. Um, so this is an image of, um, of Chris Kyle from the film American Sniper, which is based on his memoir. He was an American sniper in the Marines, I believe. And in the book and in the film, well, no, not in, not in the book, but in the film, they portray him as a very um, sympathetic kind of guy who has moral qualms about shooting at children. And in this scene in particular, he's, he's targeting a child that supposedly has bombs strapped to him. Um, but in his book, you know, this is a quote from his book, he's not a very sympathetic person. So this is an example of how after 9-11, um, you know, the tragic events and attacks on the World Trade Center and so forth, um, people from, from um, the Middle East and Asia were further stereotyped in mainstream media, as well as in popular culture and the news. Um, and so uh, the culture in Afghanistan was uh, interpolated as static and fixed in time so that, you know, it's, it's always been that way and that they've always had these problematic traditions. But I knew because of being from there and partially growing up there that that's not the case, that all culture is dynamic and mutable and sometimes cultures get regressive, sometimes they move forward and that social movements and the media make a big difference in terms of 
moving culture backwards or forwards. Um, so, you know, a little bit more background for you here. Um, and then we're going to move on to this um, slide, which I think is important. And I call it the importance of contextualization and where does fanaticism come from? Is it indigenous to the culture? Who fosters it? And the reason why I do this is because, you know, oftentimes the way um, the East and the West are set up is that they're set up in the mainstream and dominant media and in dominant discourse in general, including sometimes in academia, as that, you know, the West is a place where civilization comes from, where progress, where democracy, where all of these positive developments come from. And the East is where all the negative aspects of those things come up from, you know, this despotism, dictatorships, oppression of women, so forth and so on. And this is the way, you know, and, and in particular with, with countries in the East that are um, Islamic, it's often said that, you know, um, Islam breeds fanaticism, right? So Laila Boulevard, who teaches at Columbia and Timothy Mitchell, who's um, her partner also teaches at Columbia, um, have been done really great work that shows the importance of that. So Laila Abulavad says that we need to be suspicious when neat cultural icons are plastered over messier historical and political narratives. So we need to be wary when Lord Cromer and British ruled Egypt, French ladies in Algeria and Laura Bush, all with military troops behind them, claim to be saving or liberating Muslim women. And Timothy Mitchell says, American financial and military support for the ultra-religious Afghan and Pakistani groups was neither random nor coincidental. When other governments move closer to the US, Egypt, Pakistan, and many others, um, their political rhetoric and modes of legitimation become avowedly more Islamic. So the, the reason why these are important is because you know we have in our mind that the you know, US military goes in for good purposes and that the US is on one side and Islamic extremism is on the other side. But in reality, what happens is that the much of the funding for these ultra religious groups comes from the US. And so these are ways of contextualizing that we often don't um, see in the media. So um, yeah, and both of them were professors of mine when I was a graduate student. Um, so these are some examples of films that portray, um, you know, South Asian, um, West Asian, Middle Eastern people and in very negative lights. And they're they're highly popular um, and and they have um, they gross, you know, um, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. So and the critics oftentimes. Um, don't like them and find them to be very problematic, but the general population tends to talk with their money and they actively support these. Um, so these are some examples of better ones. These are films that are, you know, show some of the messier complications and don't fall into this binary thinking of good, evil, you know, bad um, things like that. And then um, this, uh, this last group that I'll show you um, is um, 
is but it's even smaller so you know these are smaller budget these are the, the very big budget ones these are smaller budget and then these are very very small ones that are made by um with by asian americans or what are called hyphenated americans people who have a foot both in um, their countries of origin but also grew up partially here so they go back and forth so for example wounds of waziristan is made by uh madia tahir who is um Pakistani American. This film, the FBI blew up my ice skates. And then this one's called Norman Schwarzkopf Made Me Gay is by Sarah Zia Ibrahimi and Lindsay Martin. This is my film, um, Postcards from Tora Bora that I made with Kelly Dolak. Um, so she's Iranian American. So a lot of hyphenated people who've made smaller budget films, oftentimes through universities and things like that. Um, these are the bigger ones, Dirty Wars, um, and um, so forth. So not all of them have the same type of circulation, but depending on budgets and what the content is. So moving along um, in the interest of time, I wanted to bring in two other um, academics and professors who've been um, inspirational to my own work, and one was... Um, Faye Ginsberg, who is my PhD um, advisor at NYU. Um, and so I'm not going to read the whole thing here for you, but I just want you to have a sense of her concepts of what she calls cultural activism or activist imaginary. And she herself works closely with, um, with indigenous and First Nations communities like the, the Inuit and Canada and the Aboriginal people and Australia and so forth. And um, she talks about the importance of people um, helping to train um, subaltern groups or people who are marginalized to make their own media. So, you know, she's created film festivals for people to come um, and for people, uh, indigenous media makers to have more opportunities to distribute and circulate their work, right? So if you're in positions of privilege and power and institutional, uh, you have the institutional means to support those types of works that oftentimes don't get airtime and don't get circulated, that that's something important to do. And then Edward Said, you know, is one of the um, prominent um, individuals, scholars who put Orientalism or the concept of Orientalism on the map with, with his book um, talks about the importance of also working across your culture and race and gender and so forth. And I'll, I'll, read, I'll read this quote of his down here because I think it's, it really emphasizes the importance of thinking about interconnections between all of us and how we can um, challenge and resist the, the hatred that's fueled through dominant media and how we could make media and you know publish work that um, it is uh, has a, a better sensibility and spirit of humanism. So Said himself was a humanism humanist. So he writes, it seems to me that unless we emphasize and maximize the spirit of cooperation and humanistic exchange, and here I speak not simply of uninformed delight, 
or amateurs enthusiasm for the exotic, but rather a profound existential commitment and labor on behalf of the other, we are going to end up superficially and stridently banging on the drum for our culture in opposition to all other culture. Okay, so that's all, that's all some background of, of you know, theories and scholarship that's been important to me um, going into writing my book. But now I'm gonna get into um, some of the concepts of my book. And I don't expect you to um, read um, all of that. But um, what I wanted to say is that, so I wanted to redirect um, the dialogue about Afghanistan back to Afghans themselves and how Afghan media institutions talk back to discourses pertaining to them that have been reverberating globally on an unprecedented volume and scale. Howard charged issues such as gender and sexuality, human rights, democracy, and religion, contested, framed, and negotiated by local cultural producers. This type of grounded work, along with rereading the archive, challenges the dominant top view of Afghans as tribal despots who are incapable of modernizing and nation building. So these are the media makers that I interviewed. Um, and, um, you know, in post 9-11 Afghanistan, um, there was um, a proliferation of media <clears throat> and a boom in the media industry. Um, there was, and particularly I would say with television and radio because most people because of so many years of war are illiterate. Um, so, um, you know, I interviewed um, these people on the left-hand side and, and I've interviewed over a hundred media producers. Um, and most of the money for this rapid media proliferation came from what's called the international donor community, um, including the neighboring countries um, such as Iran, Pakistan, India, China, so forth. Um, but most of the money came from Western nations. Um, and so, um, yeah, so let's get into some of the content. Um, this is a picture I took of um, a US soldier guarding what's called a telecommunication tower. This is how much of the media is broadcast. Um, internet and digital media is not as important there because the infrastructure is not so good. And once again, there's high illiteracy rates. Um, so what I demonstrate in the book is how the international community's interventions in Afghanistan have resulted in media imperialism. It's a concept we have in media studies as well as yielding positive media development projects. Um, so we can talk more about that in a minute when I talk about specific things, but I wanted to show the funding chart. Oh yeah, I also wanted, before I show the close-up of this funding chart, I wanted to show you that at the same time that the, the Western countries were investing in the media and all these really, you know, excellent media projects um, that had uh, really uh, important uh, effects for the population, which I'll talk about was happening, is that the war was ongoing. So on the one hand, you have 
Western development aid money that's improving people's lives. And then on the other hand, as you see, um, up until this goes up until 2019, and I would say up until 2020, uh, you know, you have this many bombs being dropped. And so the war was ongoing. So we have to put this into perspective that the development that the international community and Western nations were involved in was happening at the same time that um, these the war was ongoing. So this is a close up of of the funding chart and it just shows where the money for the, and as I said, the US was one of the largest uh, donors for nation building and in particular the media sector. So um, this is the funding chart that shows, um, you know, if you notice most of the money comes from um, the DOD and then USAID and other agencies and then the Department of State is the least, whereas in the past it was it was these two would spend most of the development aid, not this, but this is something that's shifted as well. Um, all right, so let me move on to this one. Um, in the book, I introduced two concepts, which I consider my theoretical contributions to the field. I call it the imperial gaze and the development gaze um, in order to understand the complexities of the merger between development and imperialism. And indeed, they are two sides of the same coin and imperial interests undermine the altruism of development projects and nation building. But I also think it's important to dis, um, distinguish and differentiate between the two. So the imperialism projects have the more negative consequences here, um, as I've written um, everything from um, you know, geopolitical dominance by a resources extraction, election engineering, and so forth, and, and propaganda through the media. Um, but the good development projects, uh, which I talk about, are um, participatory and grounds up. So they're very collaborative with the people on the ground, and they take the, the interest of people who um, Afghan people that these projects would be uh, impacting into consideration in their design and implementation. Um, so this shows some of the popular genres. So there's a lot of, uh, um, and I should say there were a lot of imported dramatic serials because now that Taliban are in power, they don't uh, have as much imported serials except from, uh, you know, more, um, Islamist countries. And then these are ones that were um, oftentimes produced without um, foreign aid. But I would say the majority of the media was produced with at least some form of foreign aid. Um, so um, the uh, out of the Western ones, the most popular ones were reality TV out of the imported um, serials, the Indian and Turkish dramatic serials or soap operas were very popular, um, which just goes to show that people need entertainment and fun in addition to more serious programming, especially in a place that's uh, a war zone. Um, 
So this is um, a shop owner and a TV store watching an Indian cereal. Um, as I said, they tend to be very popular. Um, and um, yeah. And then let's um, go to the, the next one is some of the other popular dohan um, and um, this one are popular Indian ones. I believe this was Tulsi. Um, people, you know, would always be talking about them. And then this is the first Afghan cereal that became very popular. Some of the other ones were not popular because they couldn't compete with the Indian ones since India has such a long history of making media and Afghan media has been interrupted over and over by war. But towards the end, before the Taliban takeover, this came out in 20, 2018, it, it was very well made and had high production values. Uh, it's called Khatisewam, about a group of people from different ethnic groups and um, you know, different sects of Islam living in the same apartment complex in Kabul. So moving on to, um, <clears throat> these are some of the um, people, the uh, what I call the gun-toting villains, usually sister, mother, and aunt-in-laws who scheme against the protagonist couple. So women found these characters, the villains of of dramatic serials to be particularly um, enjoyable and empowering because they offer a subversive space for women to uh, escape the patriarchal gaze. And then this is Sabah Sahar, who's an Afghan um, filmmaker. Um, and she plays, and she's also a police officer. She plays a powerful range of characters um, she was targeted by the Taliban for an assassination uh, about a year and a half ago, but she survived it. Um, so moving on, we don't have many more slides. We're going to be wrapping up soon. This is um, uh, the reality TV show Afghan Star, which is the Afghan version of American Idol or Pop Idol and X Factor. Um, and these were oftentimes... Um, the reality TV programs. Other ones were Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, um, Afghanistan's Got Talent. So there was all different ones. There was uh, one called um, Dream and Achieve. Um, and so they're oftentimes funded by um, Western, um, Western uh, NGOs or at Western government um, development money. Um, so let's move on to um, the last set of, of genres that are popular, and that's the news, public information campaigns, political satire, and talk shows. And what I talk about there is that um, despite their modest production values, they are very popular with viewers, at, because they serve an important function. Um, Afghan audiences have a very high expectation of media and journalism, and the audiences want 
um, the media to bring justice and retribution to local and international warlords who have been sowing the seeds of war, gender violence, and sectarian strife. Um, and with these programs, uh, media makers uncover, investigate, and expose corruption and abuses of power and violence by local and international warlords and government officials. Um, and so you here you have a program called Naqab, which means the, the mask. And, you know, women are given a mask to protect their identity and they can anonymously talk about um, gender violence that they're experiencing in order to stir debate. It's a program um, called um, Open Jiga, which um, is, uh, brings prominent individuals. So this was the former president who escaped before the Taliban takeover. And they let everyday people in the audience ask them questions. So once again, trying to make the country a little bit more democratic and elected officials be accountable to people. And then this is Farnaz Faratun, who was a freelancer on multiple different TV stations. And she, um, she um, did interviews with prominent individuals, um, very hard hitting, um, investigative kind of interviews into uh, all kinds of issues. So she was quite popular and she, um, managed to escape with the Taliban takeover. And I believe she's in New York now. Um, so um, last slide I have for you is these are all the people, all the media makers that have been killed and targeted because of the good work that they do. Um, and and uh, my conclusion is that for the last 20 years, Afghan media makers were developing and meeting Afghan people's high expectations. Um, without a doubt, the power of protesting and broadcast media was a very effective social tool for collective action in Afghanistan. Uh, but there was a huge cost to this emergence of a public sphere. Violence against media makers continues to be a big problem. They were subjected to threats, physical attacks, and death for providing people with programming they wanted to watch and needed to watch for, for a variety of reasons. Um, and of course, this um, has become uh, even more dangerous of a um, landscape for, for journalists and media makers ever since the um, Taliban took over. But um, it's important that we you know, continue to pay attention to media freedom and countries throughout the world uh, because it provides a counterbalance to um, government warlords and, um, you know, other types of abuses of power and corruption and so forth. So I will end here and let's open it up to some Q&A. Thank you, uh, Wazma. Thank you very much uh, for um, taking the time out to speak to us today. Um, and thank uh, you so much. yeah, thank you, thank you uh, for uh, for your uh, important work as well um, in this area. And uh, yes, I would also like to thank uh, 
AAARI, uh, Anthony Wong for Cone Sports uh, sponsoring uh, your talk and uh, you know arranging uh, arranging the webinar you know the technology stuff which is uh, so important for us to be able to do it online and i would also thank my uh, colleagues uh nitu and uh, om for um, you know joining in um yes um so you know i i would uh, you know listening to your talk you know there were some questions that came up uh, and uh, some things that i was thinking about so i guess we could start with that and then uh, open the conversation to uh, to the floor uh i yeah i wanted uh, us all to you know uh, kind of uh, get a a better sense of uh, what uh, what television uh, is under uh, taliban right now uh, we see a wide uh, you know gamut of uh, you know genres and uh, you know quite, quite a bit of activity on the media scene which uh, which a lot of people uh, for us uh, you know it's uh, it's kind of eye opening you know there are there's definitely uh, imports but uh, you know we've also heard of uh, television channels like uh, uh, tolo right and others who are doing uh, news uh, so there is a wide uh, variety and uh, you know afghan people's interest in uh, in these uh, soap operas from uh, india and uh, turkey you know that's uh, that's fascinating as well uh, so uh, yeah uh, you know now that uh, taliban is in power and uh, you know the, it's it's also kind of heartbreaking that uh, uh many of these uh you know brave uh, uh you know media uh, and uh, you know social activists were targeted uh at uh, at several points uh so yeah so what's uh, what's television uh, right now under and what uh, what kind of uh, challenges uh, is uh, the industry uh, facing yeah thanks for that great um question to start us off Samantha and for inviting me to speak with everyone um yeah so um i agree with you i think it's very heartbreaking because um despite the problems that i talk about in my book with imperialism and militarism the media sector was very successful and there was over 50 broadcast channels um you know supported by all different countries and even though there was propaganda on these channels from the countries that were supporting it because there were so many of them they would actually create what we call a marketplace of ideas so that you can find the truth amidst all of it so it's like if one channel was misreporting on on an issue because they were funded by a certain country that didn't want that information out there was enough other channels that the information could get out which is a really important function of having a open media environment and a free media environment you know um for example in the US you know I'm a media scholar and so we study these things on the one hand we have an open media environment but on the other hand it's very hard for new startups to um uh get a license to um 
be part of the, let's say the cable networks or the major networks. You can become a startup online through YouTube or other means, but it's hard to get onto, um, onto uh, the network channels. And so in a place like Afghanistan, one of the positive developments was that um, it became possible for many people to have radio stations. And, you know, here you could become a, you know, podcaster and then, or create web, web series, and then you can get on TV or on the major networks. But there you could just go straight to the masses. And so to your question of what's happened to all of that now, that's something I'm exploring currently for uh, some of my um, other research. And I'm still in touch with the people I interviewed. The lucky ones were able to get out after the Taliban. But many people are still there because they don't have the means or resources to get out. And most of the major companies, including Tolo TV, as you mentioned, which is the most popular one, and also, um, you know, received a, a good, uh, a great deal of, of U.S. development money through USAID. Um, they're all still operational, but they are not, um, they're, they're uh, not open, meaning that there's a, a censorship um, for example, many of the foreign programming from the neighboring countries and Western countries are not allowed anymore. Um, women have to be, uh, you know, more covered up, but they're still allowing women to be on TV, but they just um, have to abide by quote unquote Islamic codes. Um, and, um, you know, the only programming, foreign programming that they're still allowing is from places like um, Erdogan's Turkey, which is um, propagandistic and Islamist in its own way. So many of the programs from there that are being shown on Afghan TV are ones that look at the Ottoman Empire and have a nostalgic, nostalgic um, view of, you know, um, these great Eastern empires in their heyday, and they kind of erase any negative things that these um, quote unquote Eastern empires did, including things like, you know, the Armenian genocide and so forth and so on. And so those are the types of things they're allowing. Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's heartbreaking and I'm not entirely sure uh, what's going to happen. There's talk of, you know, um, that they might collapse because of not getting enough uh, international aid, which um, the Afghan economy was dependent on. So I'll, I'll leave it there. Yes. Thank you. I, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, Kaun has a, has a question, I guess. Yes. Uh, thank you very much. I mean, this is very, like, excellent to talk because I am not so much aware of you know, Afghanistan culture and the importance of media and etc. So very eye-opening talk. I really appreciate it. And uh, I, I do agree with you when you said the importance of the roles of media for social, as a social tool for activism. <clears throat> it's so unfortunate that Taliban took over the country again and then censorship and a lot of restriction has, restriction has already begun. But, uh, based on the previous experiences, because the country was once ruled by Taliban, like prior to this recent one, and knowing the censorship and restriction, 
back then, right? So based on that experiences, uh, I'm wondering what do you think would be the best direction that people could pursue despite this, you know, restriction and limitations for, you know, like media producers? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, so you're, you're absolutely right. This is not the first time the, the Taliban are in power. You know, we call this time around that they're in power, Taliban 2.0, because they're trying to change their image to the international community that they're a kinder, gentler form of Islam. Um, and in certain ways, that's true. In other ways, they're not. Um, you know, uh, for example, during Taliban 1.0, the first time around, they banned all media. <clears throat> you could be killed if you were found to even be watching DVDs at home, right? They were, they were uh, burning books. They were uh, breaking TVs publicly. So nothing was allowed except their own Sharia radio. So now the media is operational. They just have to um, figure out how to go around the censorship codes. Um, now there was censorship during the 20 years that, the Afghanistan was under the international occupation too, but um, not like this. This is a much more uh, extreme form. And so one of the ways that people go about it sometimes is using satire, right? Um, <clears throat> so if you look at Iranian cinema, which is similar to Indian media, it, we call them the powerhouses of the region. They have long histories of, of, uh, of producing um, high quality media. And so with Indian media, they have had to produce media under um, the Islamic Republic of Iran for um, you know, 40 years now. But the films do very well internationally because it's metaphor and it's satire and those types of things. So th there, there are ways um, but the problem also is, and this is similar to what's happening with Ukraine and Russia, is that in highly controlled media environments, it's susceptible to fake news and propaganda and things like that. So one thing I say is people in the diaspora like me and other people who are still have connections over there, it's important to, to make sure that people understand what's really happening, right? And the last thing I'll say is that the Taliban itself is not a monolithic group because now there's many people who there's more moderate people and there's more hardliners. So within them, there's a conflict, right? Um, and they also are under extreme pressure because the international community, which gave most of the money, I would say between 70 to 80% of the um, you know, uh, gross income of Afghanistan isn't doing that anymore. There's all kinds of sanctions. So maybe they won't last long. Maybe that's the best case scenario. But if it falls into more war or another civil war, which we've had, that's not a good thing because, you know, the people are traumatized from, you know, close to 50 years of war now. Yeah. Yes. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, uh, so I think, uh, you know, audience members can uh, raise their hands. Uh, yes, Neetu has raised her hand. 
Hi, Vasma. Very nice uh, talk and uh, important issues. And again, I am in, on the same page as others about what has happened recently in Afghanistan. It is very heartbreaking, and I, I really feel, uh, you know, so sad. And think about those people who are still there, you know, about their situation. I wanted to talk about the economic impact uh, in the in the articles, uh, you know, I was uh, able to read over the time. Uh, there was like uh, limited funding and. Uh, you know, there were banks, you know, that were closed and people couldn't withdraw the money. So I just wanted to know if you have any update uh, about the economic situation of the people currently living in Afghanistan and how they are managing, uh, you know, their day-to-day -day expenses and their living because uh, that must be really, uh, really, really difficult for them. Yeah, uh, thank you, Neetu, too. That's a great um, question as well. Um, so, you know, I'm in touch with people over there. The situation is, is horrible. Um, there is so much starvation and poverty. Um, you know, people, let me put it this way. The international aid that was going into Afghanistan during the 20 years of the U.S.-NATO uh, war was not going and being distributed evenly. So there was still a great deal of poverty, right? It was reaching more elite Afghans. But now it's it's an entire different situation. So many people are not getting their salaries from the government. People are having to sell their children. Um, I mean, you know, some of it is also fake news, but some of it is real because I know, I, you know, I'm in touch with people. Um, there's a lot of widows in Afghanistan because of the war. And so for women who were the sole providers of their family, and sometimes they have to, you know, provide for for very large families and and you know um, sisters and brother-in-laws and multiple generations living together. If the woman was the head of the household, which is the case, especially in cities which used to be more liberal and more progressive, and they're not bringing an income, it impacts so many people, right? So, for example, they're allowing women in, in, in Kabul University and other universities to still go to university, but they're trying to make it gender segregated. And there's, you know, and it, it's creating difficulties in other ways. And they've also, um, you know, cut some of women's education and girls' education. Um, you know, there's... Um, an opium crisis similar to the US, but much worse. So that's becoming, uh, you know, it's just, it's just, it's just very dire and heartbreaking. And I, I feel like the, the media has moved on and not really talking about it. But um, the reports that are coming out of there and the level of people's desperation is, um, is, is unbelievable, you know, and so I'm part of an Afghan American, a few different organizations. We did we did some fundraising that we were successful with when the Taliban in August of this year, when the Taliban first came to power, because it was in the news, we got a great deal of donations. But now people are just not donating the same way. And Nita, to your question of of 
you know, how the sanctions and people in the U.S. not letting uh, Afghans get access to their money and in the central bank of Afghanistan is impacting it. I mean, that's the main reason. That's one of the main reasons is that they um, are not um, distributing any of the allocated monies to Afghanistan. And part of the money they actually gave to 9-11 victims, which, which the Afghan-American community was up in arms about, people were very angry about, right? Because even though we don't support the Taliban, it's not necessarily hurting the Taliban, it's hurting everyday people too. So it's a complex situation, but I'll say one more thing, which is, you know, I think this is an area that requires more research because there's different types of sanctions. And I know, um, you know, you uh, are an expert in economics and I am not, but um, you know, there's sanctions that I, that I think might be effective in certain situations, but then there's sanctions that, from what I've heard, including in other parts of the world, that really hurt people more than the governments, right? And we need to look into it. It's like, are you sanctioning money to the government, or are there other ways that we can get money to people? And why are you withholding private people's money? So in Afghanistan, in addition to not giving the government allocated money that the, U, the UN was, um, had, had negotiated, they're also not allowing um, private individuals to access money that was in central banks. So it's just kind of complicated and mind blowing. Yeah, thank you so much for that detailed uh, response. I was just also curious if there are still people over there who want to get out, uh, but are unable to, uh, you know, after all that. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. There, I mean, it's like everybody wants to get out. They wanted to get out before too. It's not like people during the Western intervention times didn't want to get out. Everybody always wanted to get out. But now, um, you know, it's just very difficult, you know, and it's contributed to um, making the, the refugee crisis much worse. And now you also have refugees from Ukraine and other places. And so this is a bigger picture thing we need to look at is that on the one hand, there's more and more anti-immigrant sentiment, right? So many places are, are creating these xenophobic policies that are saying we don't want more people from um, the East and what we call the global East and the global South to be coming to the global North and the global West. But on the other hand, many of those nations were involved in creating those situations, at least partially involved and sometimes not directly involved, but definitely involved in creating, you know, the rise of Islamism and other situations that we find ourselves in today. Yeah. Yeah, I also uh, read some articles where, you know, people are coming out and protesting and, uh, you know, that is, I, uh, I don't know what was the situation when Taliban was in power, you know, a long time ago. Uh, but that was uh, something, you know, very brave of those people to come out, you know. Uh, so I hope, you know, things gets better. And, you know, as a community, we are able to, you know, create some awareness and are able to help those people in some way. Thank you. Yeah. So much. Thank you. Yeah, no, it's true. People are protesting, but um, it is also the, at the first time around, people were not protesting because, you know, they were they were um, 
killing people left and right. And this time around, people uh, have become accustomed to having certain rights. And so they don't want to go back. And they're, as you said, they're being very brave to protest. Yeah. Women's groups, ethnic minorities are under, who are under um, attack and so forth are protesting. But, you know, I, I don't know how much longer they can if the international community's attention shifts, because partially, I think they're trying to present this better image and be quote unquote more tolerant because they think people are watching, right? And it's and they still are trying to get access to um, the international money. So we'll see. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. And thank you for, for your work. It's very important. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, so um, uh, yeah, you know, uh, sanctions have, uh, you know, uh, yeah, definitely. Uh, over the years, we have seen with uh, Iraq and other countries that they have uh, these uh, catastrophic humanitarian uh, consequences. Yeah, but um, I wanted to uh, you know, ask a slightly uh, more uh, personal question. Um, I wanted to ask uh, if you would uh, like to share some of your uh, memories uh, from Afghanistan, you know, either growing up or doing research, you know, things that uh, make you uh, hopeful that can give us an idea of, uh, you know, uh, uh, things in the culture that, uh, that we might not uh, know. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, I also, I think we're running out of time, but yeah. I think you all are going to go and, and be in, in, and breakout groups, but I, I can share some uh, memories. I also uh, co-directed and co-produced the film Postcards from Tora Bora, which is uh, available through most universities. That's about my family's experience um, leaving Afghanistan and me going back um, to the places that I remembered. Um, and um, I don't know if, if my memories make me hopeful per se and it definitely makes me um nostalgic and sad for what's been lost because you know it it takes a great uh amount of resources and um time for countries especially poor countries like afghanistan to get to a place of of um of uh having a functioning society that's you know, moving towards democracy, which is what was happening in the Afghanistan uh, of my childhood, right? So um, I came here with my family um, when the Cold War uh, happened and the Soviets invaded. Um, but, you know, what I remember is a, is a, is a progressive country. Uh, and I'm also, my family's from Kabul. And, I, you know, that might be different because in all countries, there's a difference between our urban and rural experiences. Um, but yeah, so I went back to many places and, and it, was, it was many of the places I used to go to as a child, where, whether it was parks or the zoo or other places were you know, fully destroyed or partially destroyed. And um, we have a family house that was taken over by a warlord. So. Um, none of it, you know, I would say makes me hopeful, but 
um, you know, um, you know, we'll see what happens. I mean, the only thing that maybe makes me hopeful is that I think that people did experience those those times of relative um, democracy, both in the last 20 years and during my childhood. So hopefully the new generation of younger people will fight for that and not let it go back towards extremism because the way the dominant media here frames it is that you know Afghanistan's always been like that. It was always stuck in time, and that they're just incapable of that, right? So if you don't believe you can you can change and you can be a better nation that's more inclusive, um, uh, then you can't make those changes. And so what I'm hoping and seeing a little bit both with the bravery of people who are fighting back there. Um, and including the, the, the fault lines within the Taliban is that hopefully um, we can move towards um, something better again. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, if you have time, you know, I had a, I had just one uh, last question. Uh, I was looking at the slides. Yeah. And, uh, I, you know, you talked about the shift of investment from USA to DOD. Yeah. I was wondering what that tells us. And also, uh, you know, the bombs uh, dropped. Uh, the curve was like a, you know, uh, it's, I don't know, it, there were uh, some uh, ups and downs. Uh, around 2015, there is a down. Uh, there are fewer bombs dropped. I was wondering uh, what was going on uh, then. Um so, yeah, those are uh, some of my observations. Some, you know, I was a bit curious about those things. Yeah. And, and so, what was the first part? The second the, part of the-, the first part was uh, DOD. Uh, oh, so, yes. from USA yes. to DOD, what, what is that shift? What does that tell us? Yeah. Investment into media. Yeah. Did- and I, I think, you know, that's something that. Um, I think similar to to Nito's question requires more research because it's something I noticed that in the past, when the U.S. would go into development um, of other countries, it was the USAID and State Department and other countries. But over time, it's shifted. So, so even the development money is coming more from the DoD and from the military um, institutions, and so. What that means, I don't really know, and I don't know why that shift has happened. Um, but it, uh, I think, it raises some question of why that is happening, right? Why are we not um, having more um, civil society approaches, right? And then to your question of the, um, you know, up and down curve. I'm not entirely sure, but I can say that sometimes people ask about that same thing um, when I've given these book talks, uh, Sumanth, and sometimes people think like, oh, the times where there's less um, bombs dropped on, um, you know, quote unquote insurgents in Afghanistan, like the Taliban or ISIS or so forth. But, you know, we know that those are not the only people that get hurt um, in terms of the civilian casualties. But um, sometimes people think like, oh, was it under democratic administrations, right? And that maybe the higher amount of bombing was under more Republican 
administrations? And the answer to that actually is no, because they they it's it doesn't correlate with with uh, political parties here because Obama statistically um, used more drone drone warfare and drone strikes than any other president before or after, right? Um, and so people are often surprised about that because we don't think of Obama as uh, you know uh, what's called a war hawk, um, and um, he even made a statement at one point that, uh, you know, I'm surprised I'm very good at killing people. Um, something to that effect, I'm paraphrasing him. Um, but then during the Trump era, you also had these, these um, very large scale bombs like the Moab, which was called the mother of all bombs, which is the largest uh, non-nuclear bomb ever dropped on people. And it has uh, you know, a very large range miles. Um, it's an, you know, I think maybe, I forget the exact numbers. I think like at least five miles that it damages and it, it goes really deep and it also damages the environment in terms of what's in it. It's, um, so um, yeah, it, it's, it's um, I don't really know when it dropped. I think sometimes when the, the casualties get really high, then there's reports in the international press, and then they decrease it, and then it goes back up, right? So these are things that also require analysis because, you know, how effective was the strategy of, of uh, these campaigns? Did it actually reduce terrorism or did it increase terrorism because it, you know, created so much um, uproar because of civilian casualties that maybe that more people would join these groups, right? So it's it's very complicated things to, I think, you know, when I was writing my book, there was very few people doing on the ground research um, and thinking about it. So I, I kind of had to bring together a lot of different information, but I was really hoping that there was gonna be more people going in to follow up on these things. But now, and when I was there, there was researchers from all over the world because it was, it was a bit safer, not completely safe, but a bit safer. But now people can't go to do research in the same, in the same way again, but maybe, maybe people could do research from here to figure out some of these questions. But um, I have to get going. Yeah. Um, Good luck with the rest of your class. It was a, a pleasure meeting those that I haven't met before. Um, and thank you, uh, Sumant, Anthony, uh, Kuhn, and Nitu again for uh, bringing me here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much to Professor Osman for a wonderful presentation and Professor Unakanda for inviting the Institute to co-sponsor the book talk. Uh, you can purchase her book, Television and Afghan Culture, from the University of Illinois website, $28. Uh, link is available on this talk's webpage. Uh, thank you very much, Professor Osmond, for Thank you us. all. Bye for now.